So I'm introducing this piece because my introduction has two, two clips together. One was on March 1st when I began to introduce my reading of Emily Carr's autobiography, Growing Pains, and the second one is This Morning. And so I've put them together because when I listened back on Emily Carr on the one on two days ago, it had a lot of interesting information about her work and my musing about looking at some of her work in the little book that I have here that I bought back in Vancouver last summer. So I'm going to put them together and that is what you'll hear as the introduction to the reading this morning. Good morning from Northern California. It's actually afternoon. I've been sketching this morning while listening to a discussion about seeking truth in our world of news and narratives. <laughs> so then I just went back and got a second cup of coffee and realized it was already noon and I'm, or one o'clock or whatever it is. I'm having a, a, another round of Irish soda bread. Mm. It's kind of a dreary day out. Mm. I've been looking at Emily Carr's work this morning as well. There's a little book that I purchased when I was up in Vancouver this summer, this past summer, and I saw her exhibit. And this little book is called Emily Carr Collected. And I was just moved by her way of um, making movement in the pieces she paints. And specifically looking at her trees and her forests, young pines and old maple. She uses color and line and, you know, organic kind of waves in her, the way she does her brush strokes to make uh, movement like skies. It almost reminds me of um, a bit of Van Gogh. Hers are somewhat longer strokes than his. I have to remember when I'm working that it's really okay to have raw brush strokes showing. I tend to want to mask them or move them around or go over them, and I'm not sure what that is. There's a, another picture here of 1935. She did Young Pines and Sky. Really nice. I don't doesn't tell me the size of the painting, but. Maybe in the back it does, let me see. Looks like it does in the back. 
and pines in the sky and sky it's oil on paper 88 by 58 centimeters so not that big collection of the Vancouver Art Gallery Emily Carr Trust hmm Anyway, this sky is all golden clouds and these pines are sort of silhouetted. Yeah, I really like her work. It's uh, free. It's kind of free-like and not very defined. Well, and then some of her abstracts, Formalized Trees, Spring, 1933. Um... Some of them feel like you're looking at them from a definite vantage point, like either from the top or the bottom, or... Here's one, wood interior, 1932 to 35, wow. She's painted a bunch of forest, a forest of trees, and she's focused on the bark, which I'm really fascinated with. That's constantly what I look at when I'm on my walks. Here's one called Abstract Tree Forms, 1931 to 32. Took her a while to paint that one. I get that. Let me see if that's in the back here. Do they have them in alphabetical order? How do they have them? Hmm. Anyway, my main point in talking about this is that Having read some of her story as well now, uh, and now looking at the work, it's clear. Um, here's one. It's the abstract tree forms. Is oil and paper, 61 by 91 centimeters. Hmm. Wood interior. 130 by 186 centimeters. Hmm. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, there, she has some of her totems in here. and If you can Google her, Emily Carr, with the two R's, and then just maybe take some of the tiles that I've mentioned. I like this too, Stumps, Stumps and Sky. I'm particularly looking also at her use of color because um, I constantly get bogged down, my word, bogged down with the, or what I've called it in the past is seduced by color. And I like when someone is more monochromatic and not all of her work is that way, but this particular piece, Stumps and Sky, is more in the warm colors and light colors, more monochromatic. Hmm. So there you have it. I'm going to start a new chapter today. It's called New York, I believe. I think that's where we are. We're near the end of the book.
And New York is where I think we left off. I think we, I'll have to check anyway. On. Well, it's good morning from Northern California again. I I was going to record Emily Carr's New York chapter, and that was two days ago. <laughs> Life happens, right? <laughs> I um, got distracted that day. I had started late anyway in the afternoon to read, and then something happened. I don't even recall. And then the next day, I was busy with painting and listening to music and this morning I realized I hadn't read it and I'm going to read it this morning and I thought wow I should probably do another <laughs> introduction because now in the last two days my whole studio space has changed I'm working on uh, seven pieces right now seven wet oil paintings and as I remember looking back at her work, the size she were doing oil on paper, Emily Carr, um, 88 centimeters is about three feet. It's almost 34 inches, something. And some of them were 91 centimeters and this and that. So I thought, well, it's just about the size I'm working on. I'm actually got a... Uh, a lot here that are square, which I think are 24 by 24 inches. And then I've got a 36 by 24. And then I have a small one, a 12 inch by 12 inch. And I have to say, working the size has been fun. I can work quicker. Because I have been doing these large pieces. Um, actually, is that true? Let me look. Yeah, because uh, the large pieces are anywhere between 40 inches and 36 inches. And some of them are 3 by 3, some of them are 4 by 4. So, <clears throat> generally, when I'm working a series of paintings, and I, I, I tend to do that, I, I just can't... I'm going to turn on my lights here. I just can't... Um, work on one piece and just from start to finish that's just not how I work <laughs> so let me just put this down here to make sure I'm correct here okay so this one here is 30 inches by 24 and then uh, the other ones are 24 by 24 and then those large pieces are larger so I'm not doing the large ones right now I'm just working on these smaller pieces and frankly Yesterday was very productive. I've moved these uh, pieces forward. I feel like I have a, a new insight to my visual language, if it will, if you will, and um, have discovered that I like doing certain things in the work, and I thought, I'm just going to keep doing those certain things that I like, that I have fun with, and not try to convey any sort of conceptual idea because I came from a conceptual idea school <laughs> 20 some years ago and um, 
although it was a painting uh, atmosphere, my main focus at the school, I was always pushed conceptually because the whole flavor of the school was that going that direction to conceptually convey something, which I enjoy. I enjoy the mental, the mental um, challenge and puzzle of that. So there's times when I will start a workout with a definite idea of what I'm thinking about, what I'm trying to convey in my own mind, um, whether that comes through or not, not always happens probably, but for me, it's there. So, yeah. So that's that. I'm going to start my day with, um, looking at these pieces. I'm like excited. It's like I came into the space this morning, turned on the light just now, and I'm like, these are active, uh, energized pieces. I just needed that. I needed my work to have more energy again. Wow. I'm liking it. I'm also going to go, um, I'm either going to take my sketch pad or a P or canvas and try to work outdoors more. I think I should really start, uh, frequenting my walking place, my forest, that I have been traveling on for, gosh, how many years? Probably since, well, I've been out there since I was 16. I rode my bike there when I used to live, no, not 16. 16? No, that's wrong. <laughs> oh, my. I wonder where I got 16. Well, I was a young mommy, so I wasn't that much older than that, but... <laughs> This is 20-something. 25? Yeah, 25. I was a runner back then. I was a marathoner. No, I didn't marathon, totally make the marathon. But I did run long distance, 15Ks. And I used to run back and forth to the mountain and back. And uh, so I've been frequenting that mountain for quite some time. And I've done some sketches out there. I've done a lot of photography out there. And, you know, maybe I've done, I started a painting, which is here today in the studio, which was probably a few years ago. I did a real under painting from it and never did anything more with it. Because I, I try to steer away from, quote unquote, uh, landscape or realism and that piece sort of signified that I was out there in the trees and there's the limbs and for me even though it was an abstract view it was a basically a detail of what I was looking at so but what I'm getting at is I think I want to go back out there now and do some abstract sketches in that forest because I owe that forest a lot for my life. It has a lot of me there in my life in history and it's heard a lot of my story. The trees have heard a lot of my story when I've been going through different times of my life and I think it's really time to honor that place and possibly paint directly on site 
Now, I'm not going to try to capture, like, here's the trail and here's the trees. And there's the, you know, I don't know. I just don't see myself doing that. But I do feel like the pieces that are wet today in my studio have all come from there. I mean, I'm looking at these pieces going, these are organic, natural shapes and lines and figurative work in these pieces. I'm actually really excited about what's happening in these pieces. Now, maybe tomorrow I'll look at them and go, what the fuck were you thinking about? No, I won't. Probably. I, I'm I'm hoping not. But, um, yeah, so I think I might take a trick out there today. And whether I do it with a sketch pad, a real painting, or maybe I'll take my iPad out there and do a digital sketch. I've been doing those digital sketches of periodically they can't go anywhere I don't know what to do with those when I do them because it's like well what do I do with them they're on like some sort of they can go on the computer we I guess I could eventually print them up I gotta look into that anyway a long introduction for Emily Carr today but now I am going to read New York from Growing Pains with Emily Carr her autobiography so I can move that story forward we're almost on the end of that book and that is going to be attached this is going to be attached to my other introduction from two days ago and then I'll start all right have a good day and thanks for listening Mr. Harris said and closed the book of New York's splendors he had been showing me. Photographs of the gigantic wonders, her skyscrapers, bridges, stations, elevated railways. Why not see New York now, while you are on this side of the continent? It is only a step across the line. New York is well worth the effort. I protested. I hate enormous cities crammed jam with humanity. I hate them. Mr. Harris said no more about New York. I had been much interested in his telling of his reactions to New York. He was just back from there and had gone to see a big picture exhibition. In spite of myself, my curiosity had been aroused. Instead of sleeping that night as I ought to have been, as I ought to have done, I lay awake thinking, planning a trip to New York. Next day I acted. Curiosity had won over fright. As I bought my ticket, my heart sank to somewhere around my knees, which shook with its weight. But common sense came along, took a hand, whispering, Hasn't it been your policy all through life to see whenever seeing was good? I'm going, I said to Mr. Harris. Can you give me a list of New York's art galleries, the most modern ones? Good, he said. And he also gave me an introduction to a very modern artist, the president to the Society Anonyme, New York's Modern Art Society. This lady, Miss Catherine Dreyer, was a painter, a lecturer, and a writer. Her theme throughout was modern art. She had just published Western Art in the New Era, quite a big volume. 
Wow. Hmm. A common, a couple of warm friends of mine who used to farm out west have had written me when they knew I was coming to Toronto inviting, cross the line and visit us. Now, they now lived on Long Island where the husband had been for some years manager of a millionaire's estate. I wired my friend asking, could you meet me at the station in New York? I'm scared stiff of New York. Arrangements made, myself committed, I sat down to quake. I do not understand why. I do not know why I dreaded New York. I had faced London and Paris unafraid. Perhaps this fear was because of what they had done to me and the warnings I had been given to keep away from great cities. I said to myself, this is only just a little visit, seeing things, not settling into hard work. But before, sorry, just before ever the train started, I had an argument with the porter. He insisted that my berth be made up so that I rode head first. I insisted that I would ride facing the engine. In other words, feet first. If there is an accident, you show a dead woman riding that away. Well, perhaps there won't be an accident. If I ride head first, I shall be a seasick woman, sure, certain, accident or not. He grumbled so much I let him have his way, then remade my bed while he was at the other end of the coach. I had no sooner fallen asleep than a flashlight playing across my face woke me. It was a, the quota, an immigration f- official. We were about to cross the line. He proceeded to ask all sorts of impertinent questions about me and my antecedents. I heard other angry passengers in other berths being put through the same foolish indignity. The dark coach hushed to quiet again, except for the steady grind of the train wheels a few feet below the passengers' prone bodies and ragged-out tempers. There was... Turn this off. Excuse me for a minute. This has been bothering me all day. I don't know why it's doing this. I don't know how to... I guess I have to turn it off. How do I get rid of the sound on my iPad? Okay. I probably have to go into the settings. Sorry. Let's go back here. Where was I? Ragged out tempers. That was not the end. I was just conscious again when the tobacco-smelling coat sleeve dragged across my face and turned my berth light on. Bump, bump. The porter and the customs were under my berth, grappling for my bags. First they rummaged, then they poured everything. Shoes, letters, brushes, toothpaste, hairnets over me. Anything to declare? Only that you are a disgusting nuisance, I snapped, collecting my things back into their bags. If folks will cross the line, he shrugged, Drat your old line, I shouted. It is as snarly as a long hair that has not been brushed for a year. No good to try and sleep again. I knew by the feel inside me that we were nearing a great city. The approach to them is always the same. New York, New York, the porter and his ladder bumped into the people, uncomfortably dressing in their berths. I raised my blind, tall, belching factory chimneys, rows and rows of workmen's brick houses, square ugly factories with millions of windows. Sorry, that didn't read right. I raised my blind. (laughs) Tall, belching 
factory chimneys, rows and rows of workmen's brick houses, square, ugly factories with millions of windows. Day was only half here, and it was raining. Noises changed. We were slithering into a great covered station. There on the platform, having paddled through rain at that hour, was my friend Nell. I nearly broke the window, rapping on it. She waved her umbrella in both hands. The station was about to wake and have its face, face washed. Sleepy boys were coming with pails and brooms. The breathless hither and thither rush common to all stations had not started, started as yet. Nell skirted the cleaners amiably. I never remember to have seen her ruffled or provoked. I never remember to have seen her ruffled or provoked. Once out west, I went with her to feed the sow. Nell lodged her pail of swill in the, in the crotch of the snake fence while she climbed over. Evangeline, the sow, stood up and snouted the entire pailful over Nell. There Nell stood, potato peeling in her hair, dripping with swill, and all she said was, Oh, Evangeline! Well, I suppose if one's disposition could take that, it could take New York. The distance from station to station seemed no way at all. We were talking so hard. Suddenly I remembered and said, Why, Nell, is this New York? Soon our train began skimming over beautiful green fields. The very up-to-datest farm buildings and fences were here and there, and such beautiful horses were in the pastures. Nell, where are we? On Long Island. This is where the millionaires and the multimillionaires came to recuperate when society ructions had worn them threadbare. These sumptuous estates are what the millionaires are pleased to call their country cottages. My friends lived on the home farm of their own particular millionaire's estate in a large, comfortable farmhouse. During my week's stay on Long Island, I never saw or heard a millionaire, but I saw the extravagances on which they poured their millions, and it amazed me. They had tennis courts glassed over the top so that they could play in all weathers. They had private golf courses, private lakes for fishing. They had stables full of magnificent racehorses in every style and shape of motor cars. They had gardens and conservatories, and of course they had armies of servants to keep the places in order and have them in readiness any moment the owners took the whim. I'm sick of society. It is such hard work. We will run down to our cottage on the Long Island. We will run down to our cottage on Long Island. Then a string of motor cars, as long as a funeral, would tear over the island roads, endangering dogs and everyone else's life. Motors stuffed with the fancy equipment millionaires consider indispensable. It was nothing, my friends told me, for a New York florist to send in a bill of $75 just for providing cut flowers to decorate the house for a single weekend, and there were the rest of us mortals thinking twice before spending $1 on a plant. The extravagance fairly popped my eyes. The week of my stay on Long Island happened to be Easter. Our millionaires were giving a weekend party. They kept the manager hopping. My friend's husband was the very finest type of Englishman. 
Life had given him some pretty hard knocks and left him strong, fine, honorable. The same applied to his wife. The millionaires thought the world of the pair and gave them complete trust, respect, and love. The beginning of Easter week, the manager was bidden to search the island nursery gardens, catering to the wealthy till he could locate half, half a dozen blossoming trees. They must be in full bloom. It seemed that there were to be fishing parties on their private lake. Their stables were close to the lakeside. The trees must be as high as the stables and hide the buildings from the fisher's eyes. But trees would not hurry growth for any old millionaire. They clamped their buds tight as a good parson's lips clamp on an occasion when only one well-rounded word could express his feelings. At the last nursery, we found six forsythia trees in full bloom. They were as gold as butter and as high as the stables. It took a separate lorry to move each tree. About an acre of dirt had to accompany each tree's roots. Wow. It took a battalion of men to do the job. They did it well. The forsythias did not wilt, and the reflection in the lake was lovely. The millionaires were pleased. I have no idea what the performance must have cost. The manager was also instructed to see that see the tennis court was in good shape for play. An expert was called in to inspect. Can't do nothing by Easter, he said. Court needs making over from foundation. Best I can do is patch her so she'll play him over the weekend. Patch will cost $300. The owner said, certainly, go ahead. But the expensive patch was never used once during the Easter holiday. Our millionaires were childless. Besides this place, they had a mansion in New York. Also, the wife, who was a millionaire in her own right, had a magnificent estate in Belgium. It was their favorite of the three estates. They frequently visited there. I heard that the Martha Washington Hotel in New York was a nice place for a lady alone, so I went there. It was not as tall or as high-priced as many of the newer hotels, but it was very comfortable and conveniently situated for everything. I quaked up to, the Martha's, to Martha's desk and asked the clerk, have you such a thing as a ground room floor, or at least one on second or third floor that can be reached by the stairway? The clerk's look was scornful and plainly commented, Hayseed. He said, We have such rooms, madame. There is, a little, there is little demand for them. Higher the floor, better the light and air. I dislike elevators. The clerk led the way to a room half a story higher than Martha's lounge. He turned on the light. It was never more than a twilight in that room, but I liked it in spite of its dimness. It had a private bath, and I thought the price most moderate. My window opened on into a well, and I was at the very bottom. About a thousand other windows, tier upon tier, opened into my well. Martha homed many girlish grandmothers, derelicts, who had buried their husbands or divorced them, married off their children, and did not quite know what to do with life. They were becurled, bepowdered, and tremendously interested in their food. Martha had glass doors leading from the lounge to the restaurant. 
These grandmother girls were always the first to be at the glass doors when the maids unlocked them at mealtimes. Martha's food was excellent. There was a door leading direct from the street into the dining room. Men were permitted to lunch at Martha, and a tremendous lot of businessmen came there for lunch. Martha's food was good and very reasonable. My Long Island friend came up and took sightseeing tours with me. We went in big buses with bigger megaphones, which deafened us when they told us about all the marvels we were passing. First we did the high town, and then we did the low town, and by that time we were supposed to know New York by heart. My dread of going around New York alone had completely vanished. I have often wondered what caused that fear, almost terror, of New York before I saw her. I had been raised on this continent and was much more in sympathy with the new than with the old world. New York was clean, the traffic wonderfully managed, and the people courteous. I hunted up the art galleries. Alas, I found them mostly located on top stories. My heart sank to a corresponding depth under the earth. I kept putting off the visiting of art galleries. I did do one on the 15th floor, with the exception of Rorick Gallery. This was about the lowest. Shooting up was fearful, but the thought of sinking down again appalled me. It spoiled the pleasure of the pictures. On the 15th floor, I stood aside, waiting for other passengers to enter the elevator. Half in and half out, I paused. The operator got restive. Suddenly, I backed out of the cage. Where's the stairs? I started to run in the direction of his pointing thumb. His scorn followed me. You won't get to the bottom within a week. I knew I ought to be ashamed, and I was. I was sure the cable would break or that the sink would stop my heartbeat entirely. The Rorick Museum was on the banks of the river. The building was only half a dozen stories high. The picture galleries occupied the three lower floors. Everything in the building was Mr. Rorick. His buildings, his pictures, sorry, his pictures covered the walls of all the galleries. There was one room stacked to the ceiling with parchment rolls, whether by or by about him I do not remember. He was for the sale, he was for sale in book form and by photograph at the desk on the ground floor. The attendant lowered her voice to whispering every time she uttered his name. I am afraid I do not yet know just who Rorick was. His museum did not greatly interest me. I seem to have a large following. He seemed, sorry, he seemed to have a large following, and everybody knew all about him. I was not alone when I visited the Rorick Gallery. As I went in the door, I met. As I went in the door, I met Arthur Lismer of the Toronto Group of Seven and a lady art teacher of Toronto. They turned and went back with me. They were up in New York to study the method of art teaching in the schools there and also to see the spring exhibitions. The art teaching lady immediately became a devotee of Rorick. She was voluble as we went through the galleries. Mr. Lisburn, rather silent. Presently, the lady left us to run back to the desk below and secure a few more books and photographs. I said to Mr. Lismer, 
These pictures don't make me quake, do you? Do they you? They are spectacular enough, but... Mr. Lisburn nodded, lay his fingers across his lips, and rolled his eyes in the direction of the lady from Toronto. Don't spoil her delight. She's such an ardent adorer. He pulled, out his, he pulled his watch out. Time, he shouted over the stair rail to the lady and to me. He said, old Toronto student of mine meeting us here to conduct us to the new spring shows. Come along. I'd love to only, he laughed, knowing my pet horror. Elevators? I'll fix that with the operators. Come on. Each time we were about to drop like a pail filled with rocks, Mr. Lismer whispered in the elevator man's ear, and we, and we slid down slowly and gently. I have always felt gratitude towards Arthur, towards Arthur Lismer for that. Those modern exhibitions were a wonderment beyond my comprehension, but they were certainly not beyond my interest. In some... Of them, I found great beauty, which stirred me. Others left me completely cold. In fact, some seemed silly, as though... I don't know how to do this. How do I do this? It's already going to be a long cast. Let's see if I can go to the settings. I'm going to pause. No, I can't pause this. Notifications, is that where it is? I just need to turn it off, maybe. Let's see if I turn it off. There we go. Maybe that will be it. Sorry, everybody. All right. Where are we? Those modern exhibitions were a wonderment beyond my comprehension, but they were certainly not beyond my interest. In some of them I found great beauty which stirred me, others left me completely cold. In fact, some seemed silly, as though someone was trying to force himself to do something out of the ordinary. We saw Kandinsky, Brock, Duchamp, Dove, Dove, Archipenko, Picasso, and many others. Some had gripping power. The large canvas, nude descending a staircase, hung on in one gallery. I had seen reproductions of this painting before. Mr. Lismer stood looking at it intently. His student, the lady from Toronto, had, and I arranged beside him, looking too, but this less under, but with less understanding. The four of us were dumb, till Lismer said, One thing certain, the thing is very, very feminine. Not until my last day in New York did I meet Mr. Harris's artist friend, the president of the Society Anonyme, Anonyme, it's A-N-O-N-Y-M-E, Anonyme, it's French, okay, I say it wrong, whatever. I had tried to communicate with her by phone from Martha, but without success. She lived in such swell mansions. Ordinary people were not permitted to communicate with mansion dwellers, except by some special telephonic gymnastics far too occult for me to grasp. So I wrote her a note. She immediately called at my hotel, which was most gracious of her. I happened to be out, so she left a message at the desk. Martha neglected to deliver it till within two hours of the departure of my train for Toronto. I was annoyed with Martha. 
I wanted to meet Miss Dreyer. Martha toned the best she could by sticking me into a cab and heading me for the mansions. They faced on a beautiful park and were overpowering magnificence. Were of overpowering magnificence. They were as many guard. There were as many guards, door attendants, bellboys, elevatrices, <laughs> and inquiry clerks, as if it had been a legation. Spies expected. All of them looked down their noses. I was such a very ordinary person to be asking for one of their tenants. Half a dozen attendants consulted. It was decided that one of the elevatrices, who, by the way, was costumed in black velvet, should take a bellboy and ascend. The boy would take my message and see if it was Miss Dreyer's wish to receive me. It was Miss Dreyer's wish to receive me, but the black velveted lady informed me. She's about to go out, so the visit must be brief. Such rigmarole. I began to wish I had not come, but as soon as I saw Miss Dreyer, I was glad I had. She was friendly and kind. I explained about Martha's negligence in delivering her message. She asked Mr. Harris. She asked about Mr. Harris and his work, and a little about me and my work out west. I got up to go, saying, I believe, Miss Dreyer, you were just about to go out. Only to my bank, she replied. That can wait till another day. I do not meet artists from Canada every day. She bade me to sit down again. Her house was sumptuous. On the walls were fine paintings. All were canvases by moderns, all abstract. Oh, boy. Wow. What a feast. <laughs> Back to the task. Text. Then she brought out many canvases of her own painting. She talked about abstraction and abstractionists. She was particularly proud of Franz Marc, who, which had just come into her possession. Among her own canvases was one called Portrait of a Man. I would never have suspected it. From the midst of squirming lines and half circles was something which rather resembled the outer shape of a human eye but through its center was thrust a reddish form that was really a very healthy carrot. I looked a long time. I had to say something, so I asked, Please, Miss Dreyer, why is that carrot stuck through the eye? Carrot? Mrs. Miss Dreyer gasped. Carrot? I did not think... I did think I had so plainly shown the man's benevolence. He was the most benevolent person I ever knew. I felt dreadfully wilted, dreadfully ignorant. To put me at ease, Miss Dreyer told me about her new book just published, Western Art and the New Era. I shall get it, I said. Maybe it will teach me something about abstract art. We discussed Georgia O'Keeffe's work. I told her, I told of how I had met her in the gallery of Mr. Stieglitz. Oh my God, I'm sorry. It's like, oh, I wish I was in this time period. Oh, I told of how I had met her in the gallery of Mr. Stieglitz. I said, some of her things I think beautiful, but her, she herself does not seem happy when she speaks of her work. Miss Dreyer made an impatient gesture. George O'Keefe wants to be the greatest painter. Everyone can't be that, but all can contribute. Does the bird in the woods care if he is the biggest, if he is the best singer? Oh, I love this. <laughs> 
He sings because he is happy. It is the altogether happiness which makes one grand, great chorus. Oh, that's, let me read that again. Georgia O'Keeffe wants to be the greatest painter. Everyone can't be that, but all can contribute. Does the bird in the woods care if he is the best singer? He sings best. He sings because he is happy. It is the altogether happiness which makes one grand, great chorus. That's all in quotes. Hmm. I have often thought of that statement of Miss Dreyer's also of how extremely nice she was to me. Thank Mr. Harris for sending you. I am so glad I had not left, already left for my bank. Were her goodbye words. And that is chapter on New York. I loved it. And now the next chapter will be Lauren Harris. So I will do that next time. Thanks for listening and sorry for the length of the cast, but it is what it is, right? Have a good one.